Hello, and welcome to season six of Not Another Science podcast. To kick off this brand new season, we are your new hosts. I'm Kelsey, a PhD student in population genomics. And I'm Katie, a PhD student in stem cells and genetics. We're excited to bring you lots of science this season, from pandas to sustainability to data science, so stay tuned. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, manufacturers and direct suppliers of laboratory and medical products to academia, research, pharmaceutical, biotechnology and healthcare organisations globally. For details of their extensive product range, visit www.gbo.com. To kick off our first episode of the new season, we are marking a giant farewell as Edinburgh Zoo says goodbye to the pair of giant pandas that have been in the city for the last 12 years as they travel back to China in December. Our guest this episode is the newly titled Dr Kirsten Wilson, who has been doing her PhD on panda reproduction. Hi, I'm Carson. I'm a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh and I study giant panda reproduction. So this kind of started out because there are obviously two giant pandas at Edinburgh Zoo and they were here for breeding purposes. And at the beginning, sort of 12 years ago now, there was kind of, we knew some things about panda reproduction, but there was a lot of, a lot of uh, unanswered questions. And at the time I came into it, pandas had been here for uh, three or four years and we tried a couple of times and there were no cubs yet and so kind of was really a drive to see could we get a panda cub for Edinburgh obviously it hasn't worked out <laughs> and like how did you personally end up doing a PhD in panda breeding or uh, reproduction yeah I just kind of I just kind of fell into it I definitely did not uh, set out with the intention after I'd done my undergrad in anatomy, I was really interested in just reproduction in general. And I just kind of wanted to know more. So I did the, there's a reproductive science master's here at the university. And so I did that and it was all just a research base. So you did two, six months projects. And one of the projects came up and it was just called the Panda Project. And I was like, that sounds cool. Like, I want to do that. Like, I knew nothing else. I was like, that just sounds like a cool project. And I mean, I was only maybe a few months in. And at that time, it was just like monitoring her 2015 breeding season. And I sort of said to my supervisor, like, this is cool. Like, I want to I want to keep doing this. Um, so we tried to get funding. Nothing kind of worked out. So I ended up at the end of my master's. I did a year as a technician and at the same time put together an application. So I kind of wrote the proposal myself and uh, yeah, just applied for a PhD and then I also applied for a staff scholarship. So I worked full time and did my PhD part time um, with funding from the university for the uh, fees. And then the lab I worked in put money towards everything else. That's really cool. How often do you get to visit the pandas in Edinburgh? So going like behind the scenes, I've obviously seen more than uh, the average uh, the average visitor. The first few times like I went for meetings, I asked. And I got to go and see but um I'm kind of like I've seen them now like I'm happy to leave them leave them be but as a visitor I mean I've been a member of Edinburgh Zoo my whole life so I go all the time and especially because they're leaving in just a couple of months I've made an effort to go and see them more because I could stand and watch pandas all day like they could just be sleeping and I'll be content watching them <laughs> do they actually show up that often oh, yeah. they, they do surprisingly they do <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people go and say, oh, but the panda was just sleeping. And you go, no, they were digesting because they spent the last five hours eating all their bamboo. <laughs> and what's one of your favourite things about the pandas when you go and see them? 
I mean, I like just watching them because they're very cute. But um, scientifically, they are very much a challenge. I think it's, it has been a fun challenge. I mean, I think if you'd asked me at midnight when I'm still in the lab and I'm analyzing samples, I would not have said it was fun. Mm-hmm. But with retrospect, it has been it has been a fun challenge and they really like to keep you on your toes. <laughs> like nothing is the same every year. <laughs> like you have to kind of, I've, I've enjoyed that being prepared for, well, be prepared to not know what you're doing. <laughs> so um, what do you actually do with the pandas? Like how are you helping them? So... My research is all non-invasive, which uh, basically means to get the samples to study, we don't do anything to the panda. So the main sample type for non-invasive work is urine. So basically, I wait for the panda to pee, and then the keeper safely sort of entices the panda away to a different area of the enclosure, and then they close off the gate because they're not allowed to have any um, interaction directly with the animals because they're they're still a bear they're very dangerous and then the keeper runs in with a little syringe and syringes the, the sample off the floor <laughs> so it's uh that's not a very scientific part but then basically they do that uh, every day so often it will just be when they're doing their regular cleaning and giving them more bamboo and they'll take the samples opportunistically so it's really important for pandas research to be non-invasive because you don't want to introduce something that could affect what you're going to see at the end of the day because you can't really take a blood sample every day and it relies on the cooperation of the panda so while they are trained to you know voluntarily they'll put their paw into what's called a blood sleeve they can do it but if they don't want to participate then they don't have to and usually they don't want to participate when it's like the most important to get the sample so urine is a really good alternative um for that and so what i am doing is we are basically looking for like reproductive markers in the urine. So we want to see if we can tell lots of different things. So can we, do we know if the panda's coming up to her fertile period? You know, is she pregnant? That's kind of, that was what it started with. And then it became, can we tell if she's not pregnant? Because clearly we, we weren't getting the pregnant outcome that we were wanting here at Edinburgh. So basically a pregnancy test for pandas. Essentially, that was, that's the dream, <laughs> yeah. Sadly, because humans obviously have HCG, which is produced by the placenta, like at the beginning there. Okay. Pandas don't have, there's not a panda equivalent. Sadly, you can't just put panda pee on a human pregnancy stick. I wish it was that simple. But so pandas don't have, they're one of their many sort of complex reproductive features is that they use delayed implantation. Okay. So after conception, there's development to like a blastocyst stage. So basically tiny bulk cells and then development stops. And this just stays free floating in the uterus for basically between hundred or 50 and 130 days. Oh, wow. Um, so it, for a variable length of time, and that varies per year and per panda. So another keep you on your toes moment. And then um, basically we don't know what the signal is to that blastocyst to then reactivate and start developing and then implant. So for that first potentially 130 days, there's there's no placenta, there's no, there's just nothing that, that we can we can look at to say, oh yeah, there's something in there or there's not something in there. And um, so only once it implants is when you've got that connection and there should be something in the maternal system to say there's a, there's a baby in here. So for like the first hundred days, you basically have no information. Yes, that's correct. 
so maybe like 10 years or so ago, there was maybe hope that we'd found a marker of conception, um, but that's not really worked out for us. Um, so really we're still, that's something we still need to find. We need to find, I don't know if it's going to be a, a, some sort of special method we use, or if we're just completely looking at the wrong types of molecules in, in the urine samples, or maybe you actually just can't find out from urine. You know, it just might not be the right, the right sample type. Is that trying to um, trying to get them to do it naturally, or so the the first aim is obviously to try and have that natural breeding because that's what would happen in the wild. From the first few uh, attempts, the two pandas here, different personalities. I shall I shall say they um they didn't really get on so well the very first time. There were sort of good indications that it would maybe work out, but um obviously things can change really quickly, and if if one of them doesn't like how the other one is reacting, then it can just break down immediately. And um, which is why we've got artificial insemination as a kind of a backup or which is now uh, would be a first choice here because our male sadly in 2018 had testicular tumors. And so he had to be castrated. So yeah, from then it was definitely not an option to go down the natural route. For how long are the pandas able to reproduce for? Is it like, do they have months? Do they have weeks? Is it a couple of days? So their breeding season happens in the spring. And again, that's variable. So anytime between February and May, usually there's some exceptions and they're fertile for one to three days, which you know also makes things difficult. And that's once a year. So if you miss that time, then it's like, oops, now I have to wait a year. So it's not, it's not like with humans, you potentially could you have the potential to get pregnant every month. You Pandas are just completely different, which is one of the things that makes it challenging, but it's exciting at the same time because I like to think going into each year, I'd be like, okay, well, last year we did these things and this worked really well, so we'll do it the same this year. And you do some things and then it's like, oh, her profiles are looking a bit different. So one of the things, well, the main hormone that we look at for monitoring for her breeding season is estrogen. And when we're coming up to the when she's coming up to that fertile period her estrogen in the urine will increase for between one and two weeks so again that's variable and also how much it increases by is also variable so yeah that's why you've got to get basically every sample that comes out of that panda you have to like get and usually the one the ones you really want like the panda just knows and like we've watched her like on the cameras and she'll like do the sample and then like stand in it and you're just like, no, I wanted that. Um, and I just, she just knows that you want that sample. But luckily, they, t they like humans, they, they pee many times a day. So um, good opportunities. I mean, it's a great sample type because it just naturally happens. So after that one to two weeks, then estrogen's decrease. And it's in that decrease is when ovulation happens. So once you see the decrease, you're like, right, we potentially have three days. But you kind of want, you want to be as close as possible. And obviously if the pandas, if you're going to naturally mate the panda, then they'll be really showing all the behaviors towards the male and the pandas themselves will know the best time. Um, so if you can't, if that's an option, that's, that's great. But here at Edinburgh, we've not really had that option. So um, because there's, there's no op opportunity for like natural reproduction with the Edinburgh pandas, is it now a matter of trying to use implantation or some sort of... So it's all been artificial insemination. So basically we've used a semen from 
a male. So we do we have had the the male here at Edinburgh. His samples are stored at the zoo. We've not done breeding for the past two years, but the two years before that, we um, used semen from a different male um, in China. Just to, I mean, we don't think that his tumours had any effect on his reproductive capabilities, but just in case, it was almost just better to to use another male. So our Chinese colleagues um, picked a male and <laughs> sent the sample. Presumably they can, they can breed in the wild. They're just still quite slow at getting it on. Is that like, is that playing into how endangered they are? Um, are there still kind of issues with getting them to breed that much in the wild? Or is this more of it being in an artificial environment in a zoo? So I think in the wild, there's a number of different factors. Um, there's several different mountain ranges in different provinces in China that they live in, and their habitat is quite separated. And so some in some areas, there are a lot of pandas. And I think in those areas, they're just naturally are going to flourish with breeding because the, the females have a choice. <laughs> they, you know, they'll, they'll just put out the, the pheromones that say, I'm coming into season. And then all the males in the vicinity will be actively looking for females. And then she can mate with multiple males. Mm-hmm. And the males will sort of have a competition really to see who's who's the best one and she'll pick the best one and she then might go back for the for the other ones at some point. Um, and in some of the areas there are so few pandas that they don't have a choice. And mate choices more recently coming out as a big thing for successful breeding. So even if they do mate, but it's not their preferred mate, you know, they have a lower chance of actually having a successful pregnancy. I mean, fair enough. So yeah, you know, and there's also compatibility. Some some pandas are just not compatible genetically because we're in we are in that artificial environment of a zoo. We are sent one pair of pandas. You know, if she doesn't like him and and compatibility wise, they they're not going to work. But then. That's just how that goes, which is obviously really unfortunate if the aim of having pandas in a zoo is to, is to breed them. But there are a lot of other other outcomes that come from having pandas. It's a huge source of education and being able to do research like I do. Um, but in the wild, I think they are they are okay. They are fine at breeding. I think they've they've fine-tuned. I mean, I know one cub a year, and that's maybe only every three years, doesn't sound successful. But it's very costs a lot of energy to put into reproduction. So they've timed their breeding season and the birth season. They've timed that to the best periods of the year for bamboo so that they can get the best bamboo when they need it. Um, so actually it works for them. And then the cubs with them for up to two years. So you have a cub and then you actually oh, I've got this two year commitment. So I don't I wouldn't say they're bad at breeding. Some of them, some of them maybe are. It might it just you know genetically they're not they're not great. But um, I do think they're doing okay. I think that's a big misconception is that they just and some people say oh but they're too lazy to breed, and it's not. They're just they're digesting all that bamboo. Some buffalo. <laughs> um, yeah. What what do you mean by genetically incompatible? I'm not a geneticist, but um, some pandas just don't work. Like they just don't work together. But there's also, we also have to think about in the captive population, this started from a few pandas that they had had been brought in from the wild. And actually there's a huge representation of some genes, some male genes throughout the population because they were really good breeders, these certain males. 
yeah, within the captive population. So there's been a few very prolific breeders. I think one of them maybe is represented in like 25% of the current population, which is just a huge number. So that then you go, okay, actually, this female can't breed with any of these males because she's too closely related. And then you don't want to keep putting those same genes into the pool. You kind of want the diversity, which is uh, one of the bases in China have now started doing work where they have certain females and they go out into semi-wild enclosures. They breed with wild males. So they bring in that new gene pool basically, and then come back in to give birth to the cubs, um, which is just so forward. I, like, I, I really enjoy like seeing like things like that having success. Yeah. So we've spoken a bit about wild pandas, uh, but like how are pandas important for their actual environment? How do they play a role in like the wild environment that they're normally in? Yeah, so panda habitat is very diverse. So even though it's, it's a sort of temperate forest area and they are really one of the species that keep it going because they cover quite a wide, their territory is quite big. And so they obviously do dispersal of various seeds. And I mean, they're, they, they eat a lot of bamboo, so they poo a lot. So basically they're keeping the ground fertile. Um, but pandas are also known as an umbrella species. So in protecting the panda habitat and the pandas, you're protecting, I think I read it, something like up to 600 other vertebrate species who also live in those areas. So it's not just pandas that are being sort of saved by the conservation efforts. It's a number of other species which are sort of uh, native to those areas. So things like there's the golden snub-nosed monkey, which is another very famous Sichuan species, which have had, had huge success by having the panda umbrella over them. That's cool. cool. Yeah. Are pandas, because they've kind of been the poster child for conservation for quite a few years now, is like the WWF logo and everything, is that has there been kind of an increase in panda numbers in the wild since then? Or yeah, so that has really done that has done pandas well. So the I'd say pandas are very much a conservation success story. Um there's the last sort of survey that there was of pandas. So this was the fourth survey in 2012 to 2014. They were estimated uh, 1,864 pandas in the wild, um, which was an increase on the, the previous survey, which had been 10 years prior. But these surveys not only look at the panda, physical panda numbers, they also look at the, um, the potential panda habitat and the areas that are protected and which aren't. And there's been a huge increase in that over the years of having these surveys as well. Um, so in 2016, pandas were listed or downgraded from endangered to vulnerable. Um, but there's a number of different categories within that. And it doesn't mean that we the efforts should stop just because you're like, oh, well, they're not endangered anymore. They're, they're doing okay. And um, there still needs to be efforts towards it. And um, even since then, there's the efforts in China to protect the wild habitat and the wild species are just immense. So there's a new giant panda national park um, being established, which is only really in the past sort of six years and it's just seen huge success already um, and again that's not only protecting pandas but all the other species that live in those areas and um, so one of the things is to have sort of biological corridors to to link all those separate areas so that the pandas can then move around more you know potentially open up opportunities for more breeding so then hopefully in sort of the long term you would see a, a further increase in these numbers so one of the criticisms sometimes with giant pandas is that so much effort is put into their conservation and it kind of ignores other endangered species um, just because 
they're such a popular animal anyway. So do you think that, you know, there's a right level of like effort that's being put into conserving pandas or do you think there should be more or less if you're like thinking about all the other species that are endangered as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think the right amount of effort's going in. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe, I'm probably biased. I really love pandas. Um, but I think it, there are so many endangered species and many that, that will become endangered. But I think what's being put into pandas is very specific in, in China for the wild. Obviously, my reproductive research doesn't necessarily directly impact those pandas. But when pandas are loaned internationally, they're basically the zoos all pay a fee to China. And I think a lot of the time, part of that fee goes towards the panda conservation. I think there will be a point where we're they're kind of it evens out. I think maybe it's always just see, seen as there's constantly increased efforts going towards pandas. Um, but there is so much research ongoing outside of pandas and endangered species, but maybe just actually it's not publicised as well. Um, just because pandas are on the WWF logo, I think it's maybe, it's, 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 it's been good and maybe bad for them. It's been good in that back initially when they became on the logo, it was really important. Um, but now, you know, we've, we've gotten those numbers there, but maybe it's a success story that can be seen as now's the time to put the effort into these other species because it can do good. Yeah. And as you say, conserving panda habitat is good for so many other species. Yeah. I think one of the biggest worries now, though, is climate change, Um, which is obviously a big worry to many of of the species around the world. But with pandas relying on that bamboo and with them being sort of pushed further up into areas maybe where they are not best specialised for is a worry with what what could happen with the increase in temperature. Yeah, would that affect the breeding season as well if they've got such a niche breeding season if there's increased temperatures and stuff? Yeah, I, I personally, I think so. We don't really have proof, but I think even in the time that I, the past seven or eight years that I've been doing this, I've seen a shift in when the breeding season occurs and even like the birth season. When I started, panda cubs around the world were being born in like August and September and now the reports come out in like June and July that cubs are born and that's been in like within the last 10 years that I I just see that change. Is that potentially risky then that the that wouldn't be the right time of year for being raised or? It could be it could mean that the but when they when the panda needs the bamboo to eat because while she's while fetal development is ongoing, the, the mother does not eat. Oh. She basically it's kind of almost like a hibernation type thing, but she basically really decreases her activity, doesn't really eat or drink. All of her energy is going into developing that cub, okay. and so it's it's very much an all in. Or and if it's not going right developmentally, they will just reabsorb because they're like, Do you know what? That's a lot of energy to put in. So if you don't have the right bamboo to then replenish that energy loss after you've given birth, then that could have a huge negative effect. Sorry, when you say absorb, what do you mean? Let <laughs> me just cycle back. So, the, um, so because maybe, you, I don't know if you know, panda babies are born very altricial. So they're, they're, they're teeny tiny. So they're about 150 grams and they could just fit in the palm of your hand. 
how big is like an adult in comparison? Adults are, females tend to range from maybe like 90 to 120 kilograms and the baby is 150 grams. So big difference. It's one of the biggest differences between a newborn and the mother. And so the develop fetal development it only occurs over what we think is around 40 days. So it's very short. Um, and because bone development doesn't really happen until kind of the end of that, there's nothing that needs to be born. So it, the, the, the mother can just reabsorb what has developed into the body. <laughs> wow. So it's uh, really important that... <laughs> <laughs> they're getting enough food yeah. and everything's going well <laughs> yeah yeah and so it's one of the things people always say um the pandas who are not pregnant they um often say oh but the panda's just pretending she's pregnant so she can get fed more and um, but that's completely not the case because one of the main hormones of pregnancy in humans and other species is progesterone but what pandas do is they show the same progesterone increase even if they're not pregnant. So this hormone, increase in hormones, is, is driving them to, to want to eat. So it's not that the panda knows she's not pregnant. It's that she's eating in case she's pregnant. So that if suddenly something tells her inside, oh, you've got a cub developing, energy needs to be diverted, then she's got the energy there to go towards the cub development. So is it quite difficult if they're also producing progesterone, even if they're not pregnant, is it quite difficult then to kind of tell later on in the pregnancy whether or not they actually are pregnant? Yeah, that's what makes it all fun. <laughs> and yeah, so that's why one of the, based one of the key aims of my PhD has been to find that panda pregnancy test because, well, we, we do look at progesterone just to sort of see where she is in the cycle, but we, we don't use it as a diagnosis. So we have been, my PhD, I've looked at several other markers and things in the urine. We've looked at different methods to see what we can do to, to say. And one of the things that I published already is that estrogens show a pregnancy-specific increase. Um, so that's been a huge help. Um, but sometimes the profiles are not very clear. And that's usually in the pandas who are not going to go on to give birth. Um, so we can use that as well as a tool to say, okay, we maybe think she was pregnant until this day and then it looks like it's gone wrong. Um, but that's why we need to look at multiple different things in the urine. So we've got a few more potential pregnancy markers that are going to hopefully be published soon. Um, but really, it's a, it's really, it's a comb it's, we say pregnancy test, but it's a combination of a lot of different things to look at, to be like, yeah, everything looks good. Because if everything looks good, then hopefully we're good to go and a baby will be born. And if the panda themselves can't even tell if they're pregnant anyway, then it sounds like quite a challenge. Yeah, it's been fun though. It's a fun challenge. Um, what would you say your favourite panda fact is? Because there's lots of quirky things about their biology, it seems. Yeah, there's lots of fun things. Um, I'm not sure if this is a panda fact or if this is just something pandas do. But I really like, as, as someone who wants to collect the urine, I really like that pandas can pee on command. Oh, yeah. If I really want that sample, the keeper keeper will very kindly go in and will maybe entice the panda with a treat, maybe a piece of apple or some honey water, and they will give the command for the panda to pee. And 
usually the panda pees, unless she really doesn't want to, in which case I'm not getting anything. Too much like training a dog. Oh, yeah. And some of the, I know from some of the zoos, they literally have like a cup on a stick and they'll like hold it under the panda and give her the commands to pee. We're not, we, we just collect off the floor, which is fine. <laughs> but like, it's just, I just think it's great. <laughs> yeah, other people might not find that fun, but as someone who wants the sample. Well, I could do good in like long road trips if you could do that, if you could just <laughs> feel <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, they're trained for they tra- they're trained for a lot of things for the veterinary purposes. So they'll put their paw into a blood sleeve so that if you needed to give them a vaccination or needed to take a blood sample, then they can do that voluntarily without being sedated or anything. And then they can you can get them to like hold their mouth open so you can check on their teeth and like check their eyes and everything to check they're healthy. So yeah, it's the same as a regular vet visit for your pet. Like you would want to be able to do the same things but obviously it's a panda and it's somewhat more dangerous than looking at a dog. <laughs> so the pandas are leaving Edinburgh soon and going back to China so what what are you what are you going to do without pandas? I know I ask myself the same question <laughs> um because yeah pandas have been been my life for eight years or so now um well, I still have all the panda samples in my freezer, so I can still, I can still, when I suddenly have a, a brainwave about what the next big thing is, I can still look at them. Um, but I still have, I'm still still employed by the by the university, so I still have running running my my lab. But if you know, if a zoo with a panda came along, <laughs> I'd I'd be there to monitor monitor their breeding season. Because yeah, there's still there's there's so many zoos in Europe that I've got collaborations with through um, my colleagues. Um, in Europe and so yeah it's not it's not panda research isn't something that you can really do as a standalone and zoo you really need to have that collaboration because I mean if I was just using the Edinburgh pandas you know we wouldn't have gone anywhere with looking for pregnancy biomarkers because we we haven't got that we haven't got that successful pregnancy with the birth of a cub to know what what our cycles are showing and yeah another panda would be really nice so it's all very, it sounds like pandas are quite unique anyway, so there's like not that much that can be applied to other animals or other conservation efforts other than the kind of overall principles, I guess. Yeah, the overall principles are easily, easily to apply across across species. But I think when I started as a master's student, very naively, I was like, oh, but there's hardly any research papers about pandas. Like, we don't really know very much. Like, what am I going to put in my literature review? But as soon as you start looking for other species... Mm. pandas become an incredibly well-studied species right yeah and so actually there's so much we don't know about other species and it might be the case that while right now we can't apply any of like the things i found to other species but as soon as we find out other things about you know even other bear species yeah some of them are incredibly understudied and it is maybe the case that that they that they do show some of the same reproductive features well, are they how related are pandas to other bear species? Because I don't know, I think I always thought of pandas as quite different in my head, but I don't mm. know. So pandas are are a bear. They are they are an ursid. So unlike when people see here red panda, they assume, oh, but giant pandas and red pandas are the same, but they're 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 completely separate. So red pandas are more like raccoons. Um, whereas giant pandas are definitely within the bear family, but in evolution pandas 
sort of diverged off the other bear species first. And so they've got more different reproductive and biological features than the other bears do together, but genetically they are a bear. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so one of the most well-studied bears then. Yes, they are, definitely. Um, Because, yeah, I just, yeah, when I started, I was like, oh, but there's no papers. And now I'm like, there's so many papers, which is really good. Um, And hopefully we're still, we're still adding to that, to that body of literature. I think with the, with like the huge effort and because they're really, they're China's national treasure, giant pandas. So there's a huge effort to, to do all sorts of studies on, on giant pandas. There's so, so much diversity within giant panda research that's ongoing. And then there's, I don't know what species is coming next at the zoo. They're, they're being secretive about what they're going to put next. Oh, yeah. I th- yeah, I think they have a, one of the aims of the RZSS, which is the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, which runs Edinburgh Zoo. One of their big aims is to um, protect, I think it's maybe 50 species in the next, hmm, I don't know if it's by 2050 or by 2030, but they've got a huge, huge conservation drive. Um, and particularly like local conservation, so native to Scotland species rather than native to China. <laughs> they're not gonna they're not gonna get any more pandas, sadly. Um, I know I know that's not happening. Um, that's our insider. <laughs> <laughs> no, sadly, it's not even insider. They they have publicly said that they're not getting any more. Which yeah, I'm a bit. I, I'd love more, but that's that. <laughs> so the is coming so it's exciting, exciting. <laughs> yeah yeah i'd like it to be another bear but i don't think that'll happen <laughs> i'm not sure how committed they'll be to collecting like another 10 years of urine samples for me <laughs> yeah i think i don't think the keeper is quite like when i started and it was like no i want every sample from that panda it's a big commitment especially like in the breeding season when i'm like i need every sample yeah. that comes out of the panda and they basically spend their spend their time like watching the pangos just pee, just pee. We need to go get it because they have other animals to look after too. Like it's they don't just look after pandas. And then I guess could you comment on like the next steps, hopefully for panda reproduction or conservation, and like where you see the field going? So I think in terms of in terms of reproduction and physiology there's now a huge drive to get into omics technologies. So there's a lot of new studies coming out looking at the, the proteomics and metabolomics, um, which have been sort of key in not only in helping with understanding about their evolution and why they do things a certain way, but I think will help advance the sort of reproductive studies that are coming out. Um, for aims that I, I would like to see be achieved in reproduction is I, I want to see that marker for conception. Um, I would love to have, you know, that early marker so that we know as soon as after the mating or the insemination has been done, you know, can we tell like a week later if, she, if she's got something there? And um, because we're really missing that. And then, yeah, I feel like there's a lot, the, the link between metabolism. So their, their use of energy and pregnancy, because clearly eating is very important to them. They need to keep up with that bamboo intake. And we, we just, there's still those links with how closely it is with reproduction that still need to be teased out that I would really like to see the study done. Mm. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I also just like that 
their main job is to like eat and sleep yeah that's basically all they do (laughs) was there anything that you wanted to promote or like any papers i've got a thread on twitter so edinburgh zoo promoted me for the women in science day and so i wrote a twitter thread about panda science so i'm just kirsten w one two three four and then i've got the pinned tweet is like a thread or what, can it still a tweet if it's not Twitter? Whatever it is, I've got one thing that has um, basically a summary of like all the studies we've published so far. That's cool. Huge thanks to Kirsten for being our first guest this season. It was great to learn so much about pandas. Reabsorbing their young came as a surprise, but I've since found out it's actually quite common in mammals and happens more than you'd think, even in cats and dogs. Even though time has run out to see the pandas in Edinburgh as they're being quarantined to prepare for their flight back to China, there are plenty of other adorable and interesting animals to see at the zoo. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this so you don't miss the fab guests we have in the works for this season. This podcast is brought to you by Edinburgh University Science Media, bringing you exciting conversations about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. You can find out more about us and read the latest issue of our magazine at uside.org.uk. That's E-U-S-C-I. We are a student-run society, so if any Edinburgh-based students would like to get involved, keep an eye out on our social media. There are lots of opportunities to write, edit and illustrate for our magazine. We are on Instagram, Media, Twitter or X at UCI, as well as Facebook and LinkedIn as Edinburgh University Science Media. Make sure to give Kirsten a follow as well. And any other feedback or suggestions for the podcast are always welcome, either via our social media or by dropping us an email at usi.podcast at gmail.com. This episode was hosted by Katie Pickett and me, Kelsey Tetley Campbell. The podcast logo was designed by Apple Chew and the podcast episode art was designed by Amy Perts. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama by Kevin McLeod. And the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening and until next time, keep it science.